Okay, so we're, um, in, as Simon said in the last four verses, so Haggai 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. The uh, meeting may be longer, but the talk won't be. (laughs) There are fewer numbers of pages in front of me, so the talk will be uh, shorter. Sorry about that, if you were expecting a full-blown one. Uh, Never mind. Thank you so much for making me so welcome. I've had a ball amongst you. It's been uh, just a joy. And thank you for being so uh, welcoming to a visitor. Um, I've enjoyed myself uh, enormously amongst you. I saw the outline for this session and... uh, uh, that Simon's got in his hand and I saw that you are going to make me feel even more at home and welcome because you're going to sing uh, a hymn later on written by uh, my great, great, great grandfather. So um, that, that, that's very kind of you. I don't know whether you knew that you'd chosen that or that just happens to be a random thing but um, I always smile when, I, uh, when we sing that one so I will smile again. Do you know the uh, story of the white Anglican clergyman who was preaching in India and was preaching through an interpreter? And the White Anglican Anglican clergyman's opening sentence went like this. The beatific familiarity of this passage, traditionally appointed for quinquagesima, must not cause us to neglect its profoundity. The translator interpreted it slightly differently and said, so far the speaker hasn't said anything worth remembering. When he does, I'll let you know. (laughs) I confess to being White Anglican and the clergyman, but why don't you bow your heads and pray that I'll say something more worthy of your memory. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy of being together this weekend, for the laughter that we've shared in, for the fun that we've had, for the time of encouragement that we've uh, engaged in. But we thank you most of all for the privilege of gathering around your word. Uh, We pray that you'll speak to us from it now, that it will move our hearts to live more godly lives. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, you can see from verse 20 of the passage read by Vidge, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. We're still on the 18th of December, 520 BC, and the clue of it, this word of the Lord coming again almost certainly means that we're meant to read the prophecy that comes in verses 20 to 23 alongside the one that we've just done in verses 10 to 19. Coming on the same day and addressing, broadly speaking, the same issue, how does the blessing of God come? Well, if in verses 10 to 19 the issue is how do the present blessings of God come, then the issue in verses 20 to 23 is how the future blessings of God will come. And you can see that in verses 20 to 23, we are talking about future blessings. I wonder whether you can see the number of times the little phrase, I will, comes. I will. I will. Remember the situation. The people have returned home to Jerusalem from Babylon. They've come back from exile... 
And there must have been massive expectation when they arrived back that the great promises that God had made to them would be fulfilled when they returned. Now, a number of you have asked very helpful questions to me uh, over the weekend about these promises. And so let me just give you a little survey of the promises that God had made to them. You probably know that the Old Testament falls into two halves, yes? The first half is Genesis 1 to 11, and the second half is Genesis 12 to the end of Malachi. They're not even halves in terms of space, I grant you, but they are the two halves of the Old Testament. Genesis 1 to 11, broadly speaking, is God's dealings with the world. And Genesis 12 to the end of Malachi, broadly speaking, is God's dealings with Abraham, who becomes Abraham, and his family, who of course become Israel. Two halves of the Old Testament, you'll see lots of parallels. God creating in Genesis 1 and 2 a people and a place and giving them his blessing as they obey his rule. And then God creates, in the second half of the Old Testament, God creates a people. Israel, he gives them a place. Canaan, he gives them a law which promises blessing if they obey. You know Adam and Eve disobey. We know that Israel disobey. And both are exiled. Adam and Eve exiled out of the garden, Israel and Judah exiled out of the land. The parallels are are big. In the second half of the Old Testament, it starts in Genesis 12 with God making I will promises to Abraham. I will promises. That is, they're promises that lie in the future. I will promises. And broadly speaking, the Abrahamic promises are to create a people who will be a blessing to all the nations... and who will live in a place God will give. Of course, it's the undoing of what happened in the Garden of Eden. But it's an I will promise. And it lay in the future. Israel get a second set of massive promises, I will promises, when they're made to David. They come in 2 Samuel 7, worth writing the reference down and following it up. And God promises, I will promises, so therefore future again, I will promises to David. The promises to David, broadly speaking, are of a king, a son of David, who will be son of God, who will rule over a kingdom that will last forever, which will be in a land of rest or peace. Genesis 12 and 2 Samuel 7. Now alongside those promises get expanded and bigged up by the writing prophets, the 16 prophets of whom we were learning the 12 to song. Can you still sing it? Can we, can we still sing it? Go. Right, start again, start again. We'll, all do, we'll all do it together, come on. Go on, start us off, uh, Matt. Brilliant. <laughs> well, there's sixteen writing prophets, of which we learnt the twelve minor ones. Those writing prophets, except for the last three, all told that the exile would happen, but all said that after the exile had ended, the promises to Abraham and the promises to David would be fulfilled. But the promises 
are restated again by these post-exile prophets, Zechariah, Haggai and Malachi. And Haggai, you can see, is saying, the promises God made, the I will promises, have not been fulfilled at the return from exile, but they will still be fulfilled in the future. These promises lie in the future still. Notice they are I will promises there in the future. Notice secondly, their I will promises, they are unconditional. Notice, as with the promises to Abraham, as with the promises to David, so with the promises now restated after the return from exile through Haggai, can you know, do you notice the little phrase, I will, which means they are under God's sovereign hand again. So not only are the present promises under God's sovereignty, the future promises are under God's sovereignty, and notice they are unconditional. That is, God is going to do this independently of anything about his people. He is going to do it. So the promises to Abraham, the promises to David, which we'll see in a moment, are the promises here being restated, God will, will do. And they're not dependent on any, anybody else. They are absolutely unconditional. It's a, the promises which uh, the scholars call us are a unilateral kind of covenant that God makes. He's just going to do it. Future unconditional and certain. I will. He is going to do it. I don't know whether you know the uh, story of the student who went off to university and um, hadn't written home all term. It's in the days before texts and Skype. Hadn't written home all term, so finally wrote home in the last week of term. His letter went like this. Dear Mum and Dad, I'm sorry I haven't written all term. Things have been a bit hectic. In the third week of term, our hall of residence caught fire. And I only survived by jumping from a third story window. I was fortunate only to break both legs and my pelvis. I was taken to hospital and patched up there where I spent a number of weeks. Mum and Dad, you needn't worry, I was looked after by a lovely nurse, one in particular. And to cut a long story short, Mum and Dad, we got married last Saturday. (laughs) Dear Mum and Dad, I don't think you need to be alarmed by the difference in our skin colour or the language barrier or the decades of difference in our age. We think we will be very happy indeed. Dear Mum and Dad, please don't be alarmed by anything I've written. None of it's true. The truth is I failed my first term's exams. I just wanted you to get things into perspective. (laughs) Now... Can I say, we're going to look at three promises in a moment. You can see them there on the outline. We're going to look at three promises. And we'll see that those promises have begun to be fulfilled, as we saw yesterday, in the first coming of Jesus. But they are promises, nonetheless, that actually will finally be fulfilled in the future. And so, can I encourage you to live your Christian life with an eternal perspective? With a perspective of the future. My hunch is that most of us are so comfortable in the present that we give little, little time to think about the promises of the future at all. The promises that were made to Abraham were never fulfilled in his lifetime. 
The promises that were made to David were never fulfilled in his lifetime. And actually we'll see that the promises that are being made here through Haggai here to the people of Judah in 520 BC were not fulfilled in their lifetime or experience. Indeed they may not be fulfilled in our physical lifetime but they are the promises that are to be the perspective by which we live our lives in accordance. A friend of mine um, who's actually working in Belgium uh, now uh, spends the first five minutes of his quiet time every morning. Is that something that Christians still do, young Christians still do? Is that, have you ever heard that word, a quiet time? Yeah, no? When I, I am very grateful that when I was led to Christ as a teenager, I was encouraged to read the Bible and pray as kind of the first thing to do in the morning. Well, this friend of mine in Belgium, the first thing he does in his reading of the Bible and praying, and although there's no command to do it in the Scriptures, it is a good habit to get into. You will read more of the Bible and you'll pray more if you do it every day than if you just do it, stack it all up for kind of half an hour on a Sunday afternoon. Promise me, you will do more if you do it every day. The thing he does every day is he spends the first five minutes of every day finding a Bible passage that's speaking about eternity, and he meditates on it in order to give the perspective of whatever else he's going to do that day, has got the end goal in his, in his mind. I think that's a good thing to have in view. Well, what are the things that we ought to have in view as we think about the future? First, the new covenant will come. The new covenant will come. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. It's a repeat, isn't it, of chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7. We've had the idea of the shakings of the heavens and the earth. There we were told in chapter 2 and verse 6, once more I will shake the heavens. In other words, it's going to be a covenant-creating event. That's when the first covenant was established. With Moses at Mount Sinai, an earthquake took place. And of course we will remember this morning that the new covenant has begun, hasn't it? We're going to celebrate it with bread and wine in a few minutes. Jesus said this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you and for many. Blood which was sprinkled when the first covenant, when the first earthquake happened in Exodus 24, when the first covenant was made. Blood was shed, blood was sprinkled, the new covenant, blood shed in order that the new covenant people may be established, of which we are part. But we are just a gathering this morning of those God is gathering for the gathering. I think that's the best definition of church I've ever come across. It's not mine, it's Peter Jensen, who's the Archbishop of Sydney, um, a good Archbishop. And uh, he defines church as a gathering of those God is gathering for the gathering. So we are a gathering of all the people that God is internationally gathering in time for the final gathering when we'll be around the throne for all eternity. When we will be gathered as the new covenant community. And you are a little expression of that gathering now. Isn't that brilliant? You are already a people from a wide variety of uh, nationalities. One of the joys of coming and doing a weekend like this, if you came to Leyland, to the church I go to, we have a number of congregations that meet uh, on a Sunday, and we've got two Indians, a Portuguese, a handful of Welsh, (laughs) 
And I think, and I think that's it. We, because of where we are, just geographically, and the nature of the nature of the place, we are not particularly international. One of the joys of coming when this is just a remind is a reminder for me of the international nature. The new covenant will come. Are you looking forward to it? Are you ordering your life in accordance with it? Second thing that it will happen is the nations will be judged. Notice what we're told in verse 22. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. The nations will be destroyed. The enemies of God's people will be ended. If you're going to have the shalom of chapter 2 and verse 9, if God's people are going to live in the rest and security and peace that was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, it must be that the enemies of God's people are overturned. And Haggai's using the military language of the 6th century BC to describe an event, of course, Well, it happens, it begins to happen. The enemies of God's people are destroyed. Well, it begins at the cross, doesn't it? The enemy of Satan is, of course, destroyed. Or given his wounding, defeating event at the cross. But the nations, we wait for the judgment on the enemies of God's people. But the judgment on the enemies of God's people will bring about, of course, our peace. You can't have salvation without judgment. You can't have peace without destruction. Now, it may well be that in cosmopolitan London and tolerant 21st century England, it may be that you are not aching for the judgment on the enemies of God's people. It may be that you don't feel the power of the enemies of God's people. It may be you don't feel much implication of people who are enemies of God around you. But let me tell you, our brothers and sisters right around the world today are aching for that. I don't know whether you get a newspaper like Evangelicals now. It comes in monthly uh, through our door. And as it does, uh, there's a section, the World in Brief page. I looked at it this last week, the world in brief, and nearly every section of the world in brief was of our brothers and sisters around the world being persecuted today. Do you know it is almost certain that Christians today in northern Nigeria have died as a result of just going to church? It's almost certainly true that Christians will have been persecuted in Indonesia, in northern India, in Pakistan in Iraq, in Iran. Christians in southern Sudan. Aching for the time when they will not be opposed, when they will no longer be persecuted, when their family and friends will no longer be killed. And my hunch is, that I'm not a prophet, my hunch is that things may just get a whole load tougher for us in the United Kingdom in a generation to come. I've told my kids, they're all uh, professing as Christians, I've told them to expect one of them to go to prison for being a Christian in their lifetime. I may be being alarmist, 
I don't know, but I think that it may get tougher and tougher to stand up publicly and say some things are wrong, that are wrong, and we will be charged with some, some crime in saying it. It could happen, couldn't it? Is that not where the whole of the media push is? Yeah, did you get, I, I bought the Times yesterday afternoon. A whole section in the Times on the gay scene in LA and on surrogates so that uh, gay couples can have children. And the pressure is just that you read it and you read it and it's meant to make you think that's normal. That's, I'm sure that's the motive of the article, to make you think it's normal. It's not, it's wrong. And there may come a day when to say that will be illegal. And some of us may go to prison. And when we experience persecution like that, we may more ache for the time when the enemies of God's people are dealt with. You can read about it. Put in your notes 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 to 10. Paul describes the destruction on the enemies of God's people and sees it as a blessing for the people of God. I know that it's not easy to think about, but in Revelation chapter uh, 19, in Revelation chapter 19, God's people are allowed to see the enemies of God's people destroyed. And do you know what the covenant community is singing in Revelation 19 when they see the enemies of God's people destroyed? We'll be singing, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. Now you may not be able to get your brain around that doing that now. But on the last day, let me assure you, you will be so, so swept away with the justice and holiness of God that you will agree he's doing the right thing and you will be rejoicing. And it's the only way for us to have the shalom that deep down we ache for. The new covenant will come, the nations will be judged and then the exile will end. The exile will end. Well, I think that's what's being spoken of in verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. The exile, physically, in one way, had ended. They had returned from Persia, Babylon, They had returned to Jerusalem. But the promises hadn't yet been fulfilled. The promises to Abraham, the promises to David, the promises that the writing prophets had been speaking about. Haggai saying they still lie in the future. And that's what verse 23 is really about. You'll notice it opens with that little phrase, on that day. So it's on the same day that the nations are judged. It's on the same day that the enemies are defeated. On that day, well, what will happen? I'll take you, my servant Zerubbabel, and I will make you like my signet ring. Now, the signet ring, according to Jeremiah, was the badge of office of the king. The king wore a signet ring, a bit like a mayor may... Does Boris wear one? Like a mayor may wear a a chain around his certain functions, a badge of office. The signet ring was the badge of office of the king. The king wore a signet ring. And Jeremiah said that at the exile, the signet ring was taken off. But Haggai is saying the signet ring will be replaced. 
Zerubbabel will be like my signet ring. Now, of course, it never was true of actual Zerubbabel. Because Zerubbabel was only ever governor of Judah, the king, was still the king of Persia. But the kingship would be restored when the one Zerubbabel shadowed comes. And so, of course, you'll find the name Zerubbabel in the ancestry, in the genealogy that you get at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel opens with a genealogy that goes from Abraham and down to David and David to the exile and we end up then with the exile, Zerubbabel and we trace it down of course until we come to King, to King Jesus. Because King Jesus is the one who ends the exile. It's King Jesus who is the king over his people. It's King Jesus who fulfills ultimately the promises that God's made to Abraham and to David. It's King Jesus in whom everything finds its fulfilment. And King Jesus has come and shown he's king and dies for being king and one day will return as king over his people ruling us for all eternity. The future's bright. It's not orange, contrary to popular belief. (laughs) The future's bright because the new covenant community will be finally established around the throne as the enemies of God's people, the nations, are judged. As the exile ends, we are no longer out of the garden no longer away from God and his place, but with him in a new creation, under his King Jesus, who will rule over us justly and perfectly for all eternity. And you know, it's that future, and only that future, that makes any sense of living as a Christian in the here and now. If that future wasn't coming, living as a Christian, giving up our lives, serving with our gifts, sharing with our money, well, it frankly wouldn't make that much sense. It's only this eternal perspective that gives meaning and sense to what you and I do week by week in the local church which is why it's so important to have the eternal perspective consciously before us because it's the eternal perspective what God says I will that makes doing what you and I do worthwhile at all let's bow our heads and pray our loving heavenly father would you keep the eternal perspective before us We live with our senses bombarding us and telling us that the here and now is all there is. Telling us that the here and now is all that matters. But thank you that you have revealed to us an eternal perspective that makes sense to serve King Jesus now. That makes sense to belong to each other and to allow each other to own us. That makes sense of a striving 
to live godly lives that make sense of us loving you with all our heart. Keep that before us, we pray, so that we may serve you better. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.